Okay, we are finishing that hideous strength tonight. We're in chapter 17, Venus at St. Anne's. Daylight came with no visible sunrise as Mark was climbing to the highest ground in his journey. The white road, still virgin of human traffic, showed the footprints of here and there a bird and here and there a rabbit, for the snow shower was just then coming to its end in a flurry of larger and slower flakes. A big lorry, looking black and warm in the landscape, overtook him. The man put out his head. Going Birmingham way, mate? he asked. Roughly, said Mark. At least I'm going to St. Anne's. Where's that then? said the driver. Up on the hill behind Pennington, said Mark. Ah, said the man. I could take you to the corner, save you a bit. Mark got in beside him. It was mid-morning when the man dropped him at a corner beside a little country hotel. The snow had all lain, and there was more in the sky, and the day was extremely silent. Mark went into the little hotel and found a kind of elderly landlady. He had a hot bath and a capital breakfast, then went to sleep in a chair before a roaring fire. He did not wake till about four. He reckoned he was only a few miles from St. Anne's and decided to have tea before he set out. He had tea. At the landlady's suggestion, he had a boiled egg with his tea. Two shelves in the little sitting room were filled with bound volumes of The Strand. In one of these, he found a serial children's story which he had begun to read as a child, but abandoned because his tenth birthday came when he was halfway through it, and he was ashamed to read it after that. Now he chased it from volume to volume till he'd finished it. It was good. The grown-up stories, to which after his tenth birthday he had turned instead of it, now seemed to him, except for Sherlock Holmes, to be rubbish. I suppose I must get on soon, he said to himself. His slight reluctance to do so did not proceed from weariness. He felt, indeed, perfectly rested, and better than he had felt in several weeks. But from a sort of shyness, he was going to see Jane, and Deniston, and probably the Gimbals as well. In fact, in fact, he was going to see Jane in what he now felt to be her proper world, but not his. For he now thought that with all his lifelong eagerness to reach an inner circle, he had chosen the wrong circle. Jane was where she belonged. He was going to be admitted only out of kindness, because Jane had been fool enough to marry him. He did not resent it, but he felt shy. He saw himself as this new circle must see him, as one more little vulgarian, just like the steels and the cossers, dull, inconspicuous, frightened, calculating, cold. He wondered vaguely why he was like that. How did other people, people like Deniston or Dimble, find it so easy to saunter through the world with all their muscles relaxed and a careless eye roving the horizon, bubbling over with fancy and humor, sensitive to beauty, not continually on their guard and not needing to be? What was the secret of that fine, easy laughter which he could not by any efforts imitate? Everything about them was different. They could not even fling themselves into chairs without suggesting, by the very posture of their limbs, a certain lordliness, a leonine indolence. There was elbow room in their lives, as there never, had never been in his. They were hearts. He was only a spade. Still, he must be getting on. <coughs> of course, Jane was a heart. He must give her her freedom. It would be quite unjust to think that his love for her had been basely sensual. Love, Plato says, is the son of want. Mark's body knew better than his mind had known till recently, and even his sensual desires were the true index of something which he lacked and Jane had to give. When she first crossed the dry and dusty world which his mind inhabited, she'd been like a spring shower. In opening himself to it, he had not been mistaken. He'd gone wrong only in assuming that marriage by itself gave him either power or title to appropriate that freshness. As he now saw, one might as well have thought one could buy a sunset by buying the field from which one had seen it. He rang the bell and asked for his bill. That same afternoon, Mother Dimble and the three girls were upstairs in the big room, which occupied nearly the whole top floor of one wing of, uh, in the banner, in which the director called the wardrobe. If you had glanced in, you would have thought for one moment they were not in a room at all, but in some kind of forest, 
a tropical forest glowing with bright colors. A second glance said you might have thought they were in one of those delightful upper rooms at a big shop where carpets standing on end and rich stuffs hanging from the roof make a kind of woven forest of their own. In fact, they were standing amidst a collection of robes of state, dozens of robes which hung, each separate, from its little pillar of wood. That would do beautifully for you, Ivy, said Mother Dimble, lifting with one hand the fold of a vividly green mantle over which thin twists and spirals of gold played in a festive pattern. Come, Ivy, she continued, don't you like it? You're not still fretting about Tom, are you? Hasn't the director told you? You'll be here tonight, or tomorrow midday at latest. <coughs> Ivy looked at her with troubled eyes. Tisn't that, she said. Where'll the director himself be? But you can't want him to stay, Ivy, said Camilla, not in continual pain, and his work will be done, if all goes well at Edstow. He has longed to go back to Paralandra, said Mother Dimble. He's sort of homesick. Always, always. I could see it in his eyes. Will that Merlin man come back here? asked Ivy. I don't think so, said Jane. I don't think either he or the director expected him to. And then my dream last night, it looked as if he was on fire. I don't mean burning, you know, but light. All sorts of lights and the most curious colors shooting out of him and running up and down him. That was the last thing I saw. Merlin standing there like a kind of pillar and all those dreadful things happening all around him. And you could see in his face that he was a man used up to the last drop, if you know what I mean, that he'd fall to pieces the moment the powers let him go. We're not getting on with choosing our dresses for tonight. What is it made of? asked Camilla, fingering and then smelling the green mantle. It was a question worth asking. It was not in the least transparent, yet all sorts of lights and shades dwelled in its rippling folds, and it flowed through Camilla's hands like a waterfall. Ivy became interested. Gore, she said. However much a yard would it be? There, said Mother Dimble, as she draped it skillfully around Ivy. Then she said, oh, in genuine amazement. All three stood back from Ivy, staring at her with delight. The commonplace had not exactly gone from her form and face. The robe had taken it up, as a great composer takes up a folk tune and tosses it like a ball through his symphony and makes of it a marvel, yet leaves it still itself. A pert fairy, in quotes, or a dapper elf, in quotes, a small though perfect sprightliness stood before them, but still recognizably Ivy Mags. Isn't that like a man, exclaimed Mrs. Dimble. There's not a mirror in the room. I don't believe we were meant to see ourselves, said Jane. He said something about being mirrors enough to see another. I should just like to see what I'm like at the back, said Ivy. Now, Camilla, said Mother Dimble, there's no puzzle about you. This is obviously your one. Oh, do you think that one, said Camilla? Yes, of course, said Jane. You look ever so nice in that, said Ivy. It was a long, slender thing, which looked like steel in color, though it was soft as foam to the touch. It wrapped itself close about her loins, and flowed out in a glancing train at her heels. Like a mermaid, thought Jane, and then like a Valkyrie. I'm afraid, said Mother Dimble, you must wear a coronet with that one. Wouldn't that be rather... But Mother Dimble was already setting it on her head. That reverence, it need have nothing to do with money value, which nearly all women feel for jewelry, hushed three of them for a moment. There were perhaps no such diamonds in England. The splendor was fabulous, preposterous. What are you all staring at? asked Camilla, who had seen but one flash as the crown was raised in Mrs. Dimble's hands and did not know that she stood, quote, like starlight in the spoils of provinces. Are they real? said Ivy. Where do they come from? Mother Dimble asked Jane. Treasure of Logris, dears, treasures of Logris, said Mrs. Dimble, perhaps from beyond the moon or before the flood. Now, Jane. Jane could see nothing specially appropriate in the robe which the others agreed in putting on her. Blue was, indeed, her color, but she had thought of something a little more austere and dignified. Left to her own judgment, she would have called this a little fussy. But when she saw the others all clap their hands, she submitted. Indeed, it did not now occur to her to do otherwise, and the whole matter was forgotten a moment later in the excitement of choosing a robe for Mother Dimble. "'Something quiet,' she said. "'I'm an old woman.' and I don't want to be made ridiculous. This wouldn't do at all, said Camilla, wait, walking down the long row of hanging splendors, herself like a meteor as she passed against that background of purple and 
gold and scarlet and soft snow and elusive opal of fur, silk, <coughs> velvet, taffeta, and brocade. That's lovely, she said, but not for you. And, oh, look at that. But it wouldn't do. I don't see anything. Here, oh, do come and look. Come here, cried Ivy, as if she were afraid her discovery would run away unless others attended to it quickly. Oh, yes, yes, indeed, said Jane. Certainly, said Camilla. Put it on, Mother Dimble, said Ivy. You know you got to. It was of that almost tyrannous flame color which Jane had seen in her vision down in the lodge, but differently cut, with fur about the great copper brooch that clasped the throat with long sleeves and hangings from them. And there went with it a many-cornered cap, and they had no sooner clasped the robe than all were astonished, none more than Jane, though indeed she had had best reason to foresee the result. For now, this provincial wife of a rather obscure scholar, this respectable and barren woman with gray hair and double chin, stood before her, not to be mistaken, as a kind of priestess or a sibyl, the servant of some prehistoric goddess of fertility, an old tribal matriarch, mother of mothers, grave, formidable, and august. A long staff, curiously carved as if a snake twined up it, was apparently part of the costume. They put it in her hand. Am I awful? said Mother Dimble, looking in turn at the three silent faces. You look lovely, said Ivy. It is exactly right, said Camilla. Jane took up the old lady's hand and kissed it. Darling, she said, awful, in the old sense, is just what you do look. What are the men going to wear? asked Camilla suddenly. They can't very well go in fancy dress, can they, said Ivy, not if they're cooking and bringing things in and out all the time. And I must say, if this is to be the last night and all, I do think we ought to have done the dinner anyway. Let them do as they like about the wine, and what they'll do with the goose is more than I like to think, because I don't believe that Mr. McPhee ever roasted a bird in his life, whatever he says. They can't spoil the oysters anyway, said Camilla. That's right, said Ivy, nor the plum pudding, not really. Still, I'd like to just go down and take a look. You'd better not, said Jane with a laugh. You know what he's like when he's in charge in the kitchen. I'm not afraid of him, said Ivy, almost, but not quite putting out her tongue. And in her present dress, the gesture was not uncomely. You needn't be in the least worried about the dinner, girl, said Mother Dimble. He will do it very well, always provided he and my husband don't get into a philosophical argument just as they ought to be dishing up. Let's go and enjoy ourselves. How very warm it is in here. It's lovely, said Ivy. At that moment, the whole room shook from end to end. What on earth's that, said Jane. If the war was still on, I would have said it was a bomb, said Ivy. Come and look, said Camilla, who had regained her composure sooner than any of the others, and was now at the window which looked west towards the Valley of the Wind. Oh, look, she said again. No, it's not fire. It's not searchlights. It's not fork lightning. Ugh, there's another shock. And there, look at that. It's bright as day there beyond the church. Why, what am I talking about? It's only three o'clock. It's brighter than day. And the heat, it has begun, begun, said Mother Dimble. Section three. At about the same time that morning when Mark had climbed into the lorry, Feverstone, not much hurt, but a good deal shaken, climbed out of the stolen car. That car had ended its course upside down in a deep ditch, and Feverstone, always ready to look on the bright side, reflected as he extricated himself that things might have been worse. It might have been his own car. The snow was deep in the ditch and he was very wet. As he stood up and looked about him, he saw that he was not alone. A tall, massive figure in a black cassock was before him about five yards distant. Its back was towards him and it was already walking steadily away. Hi, shouted Feverstone. The other turned and looked at him in silence for a second or two. Then it resumed its walk. Feverstone felt at once that this was not the sort of man he would get on with. In fact, he had never liked the look of anyone less. Nor could he, in his broken, soaking pumps, follow the four-mile-an-hour stride of those booted feet. He did not attempt it. The black figure came to a gate, there stopped, and made a whinnying noise. He was apparently talking to a horse across the gate. Next moment, Feverstone did not quite see how it happened. The man was over the gate and on the horse's back, and off at a canter across the wide field that rose milk white that rose milk white to the skyline. Feverstone had no idea where he was, but clearly the first thing to do was to reach a road. It took him much longer than he expected. It was not freezing now, and deep puddles lay hidden beneath the snow in many places. 
at the bottom of the first hill, he came to such a morass that he was driven to abandon the track of the Roman road and try striking across the fields. The decision was fatal. It kept him for two hours, looking for gaps and hedges and trying to reach things that looked like roads from a distance but turned out to be nothing of the sort when one reached them. He had always hated the country and always hated weather, and he was not at any time fond of walking. Near 12 o'clock he found a road with no signpost that led him an hour later into a main road. Here, thank heavens, there was a fair amount of traffic, both cars and pedestrians, all going one way. The first three cars took no notice of his signals. The four stopped. Quick, did you get, said the driver. Going to Edstow, asked Feverstone, his hand on the door. Good Lord, no, said the other. There's Edstow, and he pointed behind him. If you want to go there. The man seemed surprised and considerably excited. In the end, <laughs> there was nothing for it but walking. Every vehicle was going away from Edstow, none going towards it. Feverstone was a little surprised. He knew all about the exodus. Indeed, it had been part of his plan to clear the city as far as possible. But he had supposed it'd be over by now. But all that afternoon, as he splashed and slipped through the churned snow, the fugitives were still passing him. We have, naturally, hardly any first-hand evidence for what happened at Edstow that afternoon and evening, but we have plenty of stories as to how so many people came to leave it at the last moment. They filled the papers for weeks and lingered in private talks for a month, and in the end became a joke. No, I don't want to hear how you got out of Edstow. Came to be a catchphrase. But behind all the exaggerations, there remains the undoubted truth that quite an astonishing number of citizens left the town just in time. One had had a message from a dying father, another had decided quite suddenly that he couldn't just say why to go and take a little holiday, another went because the pipes in his house had been burst by the frost, and he thought he might as well go, and well, go away until they were put right. Not a few had gone because of some trivial event which seemed to them an omen, a dream, a broken looking glass, tea leaves, and a cup. Omens of a more ancient kind had also revived during this crisis. One had heard his donkey, another her cat, say, as clear as clear, in quotes, go away. The hundreds and hundreds were still leaving for the old reason, because their houses had been taken from them, their livelihood destroyed, and their liberties threatened by the institutional police. It was at about four o'clock that Feverstone found himself flung on his face. That was the first shock. They continued, increasing in frequency during the hours that followed, horrible shudderings and soon heavings of the earth, and a growing murmur of widespread subterranean noise. The temperature began to rise, snow was disappearing in every direction, at times he was knee-deep in water. Haze from the melting snow filled the air. When he reached the brow of the last steep descent into Edstow, he could see nothing of the city, only fog through which extraordinary coruscations of light came up to him. Another shock sent him sprawling. He now decided not to go down. He would turn and follow the traffic, work over to the railway and try to get to London. The picture of a steaming bath at his club, of himself at the fender of the smoking room, telling this whole story rose in his mind. It would be something to have survived both Belbury and Bracton. He had survived a good many things in his day and believed in his luck. He was already a few paces down the hill when he made this decision and he turned at once. But instead of going up, he found he was still descending, as if he were on shale on a mountain slope instead of on a metal road. The ground slipped away backwards where he trod on it. When he arrested his descent, he was thirty yards lower. He began again. This time he was flung off his feet, rolled head over heels, stones, earth, grass, and water pouring over him and round him in riotous confusion. It was when... <coughs> it was as when a great wave overtakes you while you are bathing, but this time it was an earth wave. He got to his feet once again, set his face to the hill. Beyond the valley seemed to have turned into hell. The pit of fog had been ignited and burned with blinding violet flame. Water was roaring somewhere, buildings crashing, mobs shouting. The hill in front of him was in ruins, no trace of road, hedge, or field, only a cataract of loose raw earth. It was also far steeper than it had been. His mouth and hair and nostrils were full of earth. The slope was growing steeper as he looked at it. The ridge heaved up and up. Then the whole wave of earth rose, arched, trembled, and with all its weight and noise poured down on him. Section 4 Why, Logris, sir, said Cabela. 
Dinner was over at St. Anne's, and they sat at their wine in a circle about the dining room fire. As Mrs. Dimble had prophesied, the men had cooked it very well, only after their serving was over and the board cleared, had they put on their festal garments. Now they all sat at their ease and all diversely splendid. Ransom crowned at the right of the hearth, Grace Ironwood in black and silver opposite him. It was so warm that they had let the fire burn low, and in the candlelight the court dresses seemed to glow of themselves. Tell them, Dimble, said Ransom. I will not talk much from now on. Are you tired, sir? said Grace. Is the pain bad? No, Grace, he replied. It isn't that. But now that, but now that it's so very nearly time for me to go, all this feel, begins to feel like a dream. A happy dream, you understand. All of it, even the pain. I want to taste every drop. I feel as though it would be dissolved if I talked too much. I suppose you've got to go, sir, said Ivy. My dear, he said, what else is there to do? I have not grown a day or an hour older since I came back from Paralandra. There is no natural death to look forward to. The wound will only be healed of the world where it was got. All this has the disadvantage of being clean contrary to the observed laws of nature, observed McFee. The director smiled without speaking as a man who refuses to be drawn. It is not contrary to the laws of nature, said a voice from the corner where Grace Ironwood sat, almost invisible in the shadows. You are quite right, the laws of the universe are never broken. Your mistake is to think that the little regularities we have observed on one planet for a few hundred years are the real unbreakable laws, whereas they are only the remote results which the true laws bring about more often than not as a kind of accident. Shakespeare never breaks the real laws of poetry, put in Dibble, but by following them he breaks every now and then the little regularities which <laughs> critics mistake for the real laws. Then the little critics call it a license, but there's nothing licentious about it to Shakespeare. And that, said Deniston, is why nothing in nature is quite regular. There are always exceptions, a good average uniformity, but not complete. Not many exceptions to the law of death have come to my way, have come my way, observed McFate. And how, said Grace, with much emphasis, how should you expect there to be to be there on more than one such occasion? Were you a friend of Arthur's or Barbarossa's? Did you know Enoch or Elijah? Do you mean, said Jane, that the director, the Pendragon, is going where they went? He will be with Arthur, Arthur certainly, said Dimble. I can't answer for the rest. There are people who have never died. We do not yet know why. We know a little more than we did about the how. There are many places in the universe, I mean the same physical universe in which our planet moves, where an organism can last practically forever. Where Arthur is, we know. Where? said Camilla. In the third heaven, in Paralandra, in Alphalin, the distant island where the descendants of Tor and Tinadril will not find for a hundred centuries. Perhaps alone, he hesitated, and looked at Ransom, who shook his head. And that is where Logris comes in, is it, said Camilla, because he will be with Arthur? Dimble was silent for a few minutes, arranging and rearranging the fruit knife and fork, fruit fork on his plate. It all began, he said, when we discovered that the Arthurian story was mostly true history. There was a moment in the sixth century when something that is always trying to break through into this country nearly succeeded. Logris was our name for it. It will do as well as another. And then, gradually, we began to see all English history in a new way. We discovered the haunting. What haunting, asked Camilla. How something we may call Britain is always haunted by something we may call Logris. Haven't you noticed that we are two countries? After every Arthur, a Mordred. Behind every Milton, a Cromwell. A nation of poets, a nation of shopkeepers. The home of Sydney and of Cecil Rhodes. Is it any wonder they call us hypocrites? But what they mistake for hypocrisy is really the struggle between Logris and Britain. He paused and took a sip of wine before proceeding. It was long afterwards, he said, after the director had returned from the third heaven, that we were told a little more. This haunting turned out to be not only from the other side of the invisible wall. Ransom was summoned to the bedside of an old man, then dying in Cumberland. His name would mean nothing to you if I told it. That man was the Pendragon, the successor of Arthur and Uther and Cassilbelon. Then we learned the truth. There has been a secret logris in the heart of Britain all these years, an unbroken succession of Pendragons. That old man was the 78 from Arthur. Our director received from him the office, 
and the blessings. Tomorrow we shall know, or tonight, who is to be the 80th. Some of the Pendragons are well known to history, though not under that name. Others you have never heard of. But in every age, they and the little logris which gathered round them have been the fingers which gave the tiny shove or the almost imperceptible pull to prod England out of the drunken sleep or to draw her back from the final outrage into which Britain tempted her. This new history of yours, said McPhee, is a wee bit lacking in documents. It has plenty, said Dimble with a smile, but you do not know the language they're written in. When the history of these last few months comes to be written in your language and printed and taught in schools, there will be no mention in it of you and me, nor of Merlin and the Pendragon and the planets. And yet in these months Britain rebelled almost most dangerously against Logris and was defeated only just in time. Aye, said McPhee, it would be right good history without mentioning you and me or most of those present. I'd be greatly obliged if anyone would tell me what we have done, always apart from feeding the pigs and raising some very decent vegetables. <laughs> you have done what was required of you, said the director. You have obeyed and waited. It will often happen like that. As one of the modern authors, authors has told us, the altar must often be built in one place in order that the fire from heaven may descend somewhere else. But don't jump to conclusions. You may have plenty of work to do before a month has passed, Britain has lost a battle, but she will rise again. So that, meanwhile, is England, said Mother Dimble, just this swaying to and fro between Logris and Britain. Yes, said her husband, don't you feel it? The very quality of England. If, if we've got an ass's head, it is by walking in a fairy wood. We've heard something better than we can do, but we can't quite forget it. Can't you see it, everything English, a kind of awkward grace, a humble, humorous incompleteness? How right Sam Weller was when he called Mr. Pickwick an angel in gaiters. Everything here is either better or worse than Dimble, said Ransom. Ransom. Dimble, whose tone had become a little impassioned, stopped and looked towards him. He hesitated, and as Jane thought, almost blushed before he began again. You're right, sir, he said with a smile. I was forgetting what you've warned me always to remember. This haunting is no peculiarity of ours. Every people has its own haunter. There is no special privilege for England, no nonsense about a chosen nation. We speak about Logris because it is our haunting, the one we know about. But this, said McPhee, seems a very roundabout way of saying there's good and bad men everywhere. It's not a way of saying that at all, answered Dimble. You see, McPhee, if one is think thinking simply of goodness in the abstract, one soon reaches the fatal idea of something standardized, some common kind of life to which all nations ought to progress. Of course, there are universal rules to which all goodness must conform, but that's only the grammar of virtue. It's not there that the sap is. He doesn't make two blades of grass the same, how much less two saints, two nations, two angels. The whole work of healing tell us depends on nursing that little spark, on incarnating that ghost which is still alive in every real people and different in each. When Logris really dominates Britain, when the goddess reason, the divine clearness, is really enthroned in France, when the order of heaven is really followed in China, why, then it will be spring. But meantime, our concern is with Logris. We have got Britain down, but who knows how long we can hold her down. Edgta will not recover from what has happened to her tonight but there will be other Edgestows. <coughs> I wanted to ask about Edgestow, said Mother Dimble. Aren't Merlin and the Eldils a trifle, well, wholesale? Did all Edgestow deserve to be wiped out? Who are you lamenting, said McPhee, the jobbing town consul, council that have sold their own wives and daughters to bring the NICE to Edgestow? Well, I don't know much about them, said she, but in the university, even Bracton itself, we all knew it was a horrible college, of course, but did they really mean any great harm with all their fussy little intrigues? Wasn't it more silly than anything else? Hawkeye, okay, said McPhee. They were only playing themselves. Kittens letting on to be tigers, but there was a real tiger about, and their play ended by letting her in. They have no call to complain if when the hunter's after her, he lets them have a bit of lead in their guts, too. It'll learn them not to keep bad company. Well, then, the fellows of other colleges. What about Northumberland and Dukes? I know, said Deniston, one sorry for a man like Churchwood. I knew him well, and he was an old dear. All his lectures were devoted to proving the impossibility of ethics, though in private life he walked ten miles rather than leave a penny debt unpaid. But all the same, 
Was there a single doctrine practiced at Belbury which hadn't been preached by some lecturer at Edgestow? Oh, of course, they never thought that any would, would act on their theories. No one was more astonished than they when what they had been talking of for years suddenly took on reality. But it was their own child coming back to them, grown up and unrecognizable, but their own. I'm afraid it's all true, my dear, said Dimble. Traison des clerics. Clerks, des clerics. None of us is quite innocent. That's nonsense, Cecil, said Mrs. Dimble. You are all forgetting, said Grace, that nearly everyone except the very good, who were ripe for fair dismissal, and the very bad, had already left for ed left Edgedale. But I agree with Arthur. Those who have forgotten Logris sink into Britain, and those who call for nonsense will find that it comes. At that moment she was interrupted. A clawing and whinnying noise at the door had become audible. Open the door, Arthur, said Ransom. A moment later the whole party rose to its feet with cries of welcome, for the new arrival was Mr. Bultitude. Oh, I never did, said Ivy, the poor thing, and all over snow, too. I'll just take him down to the kitchen and get him something to eat. Wherever have you been, you bad thing? Eh, you just look at the state you're in. Section 5 For the third time in ten minutes, the train gave a violent lurch and came to a standstill. This time the shock put all the lights out. This is really getting a bit too bad, said a voice in the darkness. The four other passengers in the first-class compartment recognized it as belonging to the well-bred, bulky man in the brown suit, the well-informed man who, at earlier stages of the journey, had told everyone else that they ought to change, where they ought to change, and why one now reached Sturt without going through Stratford, and who it was that really controlled the line. "'It's serious for me,' said the same voice. "'I ought to be in Edgestow by now.' He got up, opened the window, and stared out into the darkness. Presently, one of the other passengers complained of the cold shut the window, and sat down. We've already been here for ten minutes, he said presently. Excuse me, twelve, said another passenger. Still the train did not move. The noise of two men quarreling in a neighboring compartment became audible. Then silence followed again. Suddenly a shock flung them all together in the darkness. It was as if the train, going at full speed, had been unskillfully pulled up. What the devil's that, said one. Open the doors. Has there been a collision? It's all right, said the well-informed man in a loud, calm voice, putting on another engine and doing it very badly. It's all these new engine drivers they've got in lately. Hello, said someone. We're moving. Slow and grunting, the train began to go. It takes time getting up to speed, said someone. Oh, you'll find it start making up for lost time in a minute, said the well-informed man. I wish they put the lights on again, said a woman's voice. We're not getting up to speed, said another. We're losing it, damn it. Are we stopping again? No, we're still moving. Oh, once more a violent shock hit them. It was worse than the last one. For nearly a minute everything seemed to be rocking and rattling. This is outrageous, exclaimed the well-informed man, once more opening the window. This time he was more fortunate. A dark figure waving a lantern was walking past underneath him. Hi, porter, guard, he bellowed. It's all right, ladies and gentlemen, it's all right, keep your seats, shouted the dark figure, marching past and ignoring him. There's no good letting all that cold air in, sir, said the passenger next to the window. There's some sort of light ahead, said the well-informed man. Signal against us, asked another. No, not a bit like that. The whole sky's lit up like a fire or like searchlights. I don't care what it's like, said the chilly man. If only, oh, another shock. Then far away in the darkness, vague, disastrous noise. The train began to move again, still slowly, as if it were groping its way. I'll make a row about this, said the well-informed man. It's a scandal. About half an hour later, the lighted platform of Sturk slowly loomed alongside. Station announcer calling, said the voice. Please keep your seats for an important announcement. Slight earthquake shock and floods have rendered the line to Edgestow impassable. No details available. Passengers for Edgestow are advised. The well-informed man, who was Curry, got out. Such a man always knows all the officials on a railway, and in a few minutes he was standing by the fire in the ticket collector's office, getting a further and private report of the disaster. Well, we don't exactly know yet, Mr. Curry, said the man. There's been nothing coming through for about an hour. It's very bad, you know. They're putting the best face on it they can. There's never been an earthquake like it in England, from what I hear. And there's floods, too. No, sir, I'm afraid you'll find nothing of Bracton College. All that part of town went almost at once. It began there, I understand. I don't know what the casualties would be. I'm glad I got my old dad out last week. Curry always, in later years, regarded this as one of the turning points of his life. He had not, up to then, been a religious man. 
but the word that now instantly came into his mind was providential. You couldn't really look at it any other way. He'd been within an ace of taking the earlier train, and if he had, why, he'd have been a dead man by now. It made one think. The whole college wiped out. It would have to be rebuilt. There'd be a complete, or almost complete, new set of fellows, a new warden. It was providential again that some responsible person would have been spared to deal with such a tremendous crisis. There couldn't be an ordinary election, of course. The college visitor, who was the Lord Chancellor, would probably have to appoint a new warden, and then, in collaboration with him, a nucleus of new fellows. The more he thought of it, the more fully Curry realized that the whole shaping of the future college rested with the sole survivor. It was almost like being a second founder, providential, providential. He saw already in imagination the portrait of that second founder of the new-built hall, his statue in the new-built quadrangle, the long, long chapter consecrated to him in the college history. All this time, without the least hypocrisy, habit and instinct had given his shoulders such, just such a droop, his eyes such a solemn sternness, his brows such a noble gravity, as a man of good feeling might have be expected to exhibit on hearing such news. The ticket collector was greatly edified. You could see he felt it bad, he said afterwards, but he could take it. He's a fine old chap. When is the next train to London? asked Curry. I must be in town first thing tomorrow morning. Six. Ivy Mags, it will be remembered, had left the dining room for the purpose of attending to Mr. Bultitude's comfort. It was therefore surprised it therefore surprised everyone when she returned in less than a minute with a wild expression on her face oh come quick someone come quick she gasped there's a bear in the kitchen a bear ivy said the director but of course oh i don't mean mr bultitude sir there's a strange bear another one indeed and it's eaten up all that was left of the goose and half the ham and all the junket now it's lying along the table eating everything as it goes along and wriggling from one dish to another and breaking all the crockery oh do come quick there'll be nothing left and what line is Mr. Bultitude taking about all this, Ivy? asked Ransom. Well, that's what I want someone to come and see. He is carrying on something dreadful, sir. I never see I never see anything like it. First of all, he just stood lifting up his legs in a funny way as if he thought he could dance, which we all know he can't. But now he's got up on the dresser on his hind legs, and there he's kind of bobbing up and down, making the awfulest noise, squeaking like, and he's put one foot into the plum pudding already, and he's got his head all mixed up in a string of onions, and I can't do nothing with him. Really, I can't. This is very odd behavior for Mr. Bultitude. You don't think, my dear, that the stranger might be a she-bear? Oh, don't say that, sir, exclaimed Ivy with extreme dismay. <coughs> I think that's the truth, Ivy. I strongly suspect that this is the future Mr. Mrs. Bultitude. It will be the present Mrs. Bultitude if we sit here talking about it much longer, said McPhee, rising to his feet. Oh dear, what shall we do, said Ivy. I'm sure Mr. Bultitude is quite equal to the situation, replied the director. At present, the lady is refreshing herself. Sine serere et baco, Dimble. We can trust them to manage their own affairs. No doubt, no doubt, said McPhee, but not in our kitchen. Ivy, my dear, said Ransom, you must be very firm. Go into the kitchen and tell the strange bear I want to see her. You wouldn't be afraid, would you? Afraid? Not me. I'll show her who's the director here. <laughs> not that it's not not that it's only natural for her. What's the matter with that jackdaw, said Dr. Dimble. I think they're trying to get out, said Denniston. Shall I open the window? It's warm enough to have the window open anyway, said the director. And as the window was open, Baron Corvo stopped, hopped out, and there was a scuffle and a chattering just outside. Another love affair, said Mrs. Dimble. It sounds as if Jack has found a Jill. What a delicious night, she added. For as the curtain swelled and lifted over the open window, all the freshness of a midsummer night seemed to be blowing into the room. At that moment, a little further off, came the sound of whinnying. Hello, said Deniston. The old mare is excited, too. Shh, listen, said Jane. That's a different horse, said Deniston. It's a stallion, said Camilla. This, said McPhee, with great emphasis, is becoming indecent. <laughs> On the contrary, said Ransom, decent in the old sense, decens, fitting, is just what it is. Venus herself is over St. Anne's. She comes more near the earth than she is wont, quoted Dimble, to make men mad. She is nearer than any astronomer knows, said Ransom. The work at Edgestow is done. The other gods have withdrawn. She waits still, and when she returns to her sphere, I will ride with her. 
Suddenly, in the semi-darkness, Mrs. Dimble's voice cried sharply, Look out! Look out, Cecil! I'm sorry, I just can't stand bats. They'll get in my hair. Cheep, cheep, went the voices of the two bats as they flickered to and fro above the candles. Because of their shadows, there seemed to be four bats instead of two. You better go, Margaret, said the director. You and Cecil had both better go. Better both go. I shall be gone very soon now. There's no need for long goodbyes. I really think I must go, said Mother Dimble. I can't stand bats. Comfort, Margaret, Cecil, said Ransom. No, do not stay. I'm not dying. Seeing people off is always folly. It's neither good mirth nor good sorrow. You mean us to go, sir, said Dimble? Go, my dear friends, your rendy maladil. He laid his hands on their heads. Cecil gave his arm to his wife, and they went. Here she is, sir, said Ivy Maggs, re-entering the room. A moment later, flushed and radiant, a bear waddled at her side, its muzzle white with junket and its cheeks sticky with gooseberry jam. And, oh, sir, she added, what is it, Ivy, said the director. Please, sir, it's poor Tom. It's my husband. And if you don't mind, you've given him something to eat and drink, I hope? Well, yes, I have. There wouldn't have been nothing if those bears had been there much longer. What has Tom got, Ivy? I gave him cold pie and the pickles. He always was a great one for pickles. And the end of the cheese and a bottle of stout. And I put the kettle on so we could make ourselves, so that he could make himself a nice cup of tea. And he's enjoying it ever so, sir. And he said, would you mind him not coming up to say how'd you do? Because he never was much for one for company, if you take my meaning. All this time, the strange bear had been standing perfectly still, with his eyes fixed on the director. Now he laid his hand on its flat head. Urendi Maladil, he said, you are a good bear. Go to your mate. Oh, but here he is. For at that moment, the door, which was already a little ajar, was pushed further open to admit the inquiring and slightly anxious face of Mr. Bultitude. Take her, Bultitude, but not in the house. Jane, open the other window, the French window. It is like a night in July. The window swung open, and the two bears went blundering out into the warmth and the wetness. Everyone noticed how light it had become. Are those birds all daft that they're singing at quarter to twelves? asked McPhee. No, said Ransom, they're sane. Now, Ivy, you want to go and talk to Tom. Mother Dimble has put you both in the little room halfway up the stairs, not in the lodge, after all. Oh, sir, said Ivy, and stopped. The director leaned forward and laid his hand on her head. Of course you want to go, he said. Why, he's hardly had time to see you in your new dress yet. Have you no kisses to give him? He said, and kissed her. Then give him mine, which are not mine, but by derivation. Don't cry, you're a good woman. Go and heal this man, Urendi Maladil. We shall meet again. What's all yon squealing and squeaking, said McPhee. I hope it's not the pigs got loose. For I tell you, there's already as much carrying on about this house and garden as I can stand. I think it's hedgehogs, said Grace Ironwood. That last sound was somewhere in the house, said Jane. Listen, said the director. And for a short time all were still. Then his face relaxed into a smile. It's my friends behind the wainscot, he said. There are revels there too, so get as snoots of puts hustle. Da singen and tanzen de mausel. I suppose, said McPhee dryly, producing his stuff box from under the ash-colored and slightly monastic-looking robe, in which, contrary to his judgment, the others had seen fit to clothe him, I suppose we may think ourselves lucky that no giraffes, hippopotami, elephants, or the like have been fit to. God Almighty, what's that? For as he spoke, a long, gray, flexible tube came in between the swinging curtains and passed over McPhee's shoulder, helped itself to a bunch of bananas. In the name of hell, where's all them beasts coming from, he said. They are the liberated prisoners from Belbury, said the director. She comes more near the earth than she was wont to, to make earth sane. Paralandra is, is all about us, and man is no longer isolated. We are now as we ought to be, between the angels, who are our elder brothers, and the beasts who are our jesters, servants, and playfellows. Whatever McPhee was attempting to say in reply was drowned by an ear-splitting noise from beyond the window. Elephants, two of them, said Jane weakly. Oh, the celery and the rose beds. By your leave, Mr. Director, said McPhee sternly. I'll just draw these curtains. You seem to forget that there are ladies present. No, said Grace Ironwood in a voice as strong as his. There will be nothing unfit for anyone to see. Draw them wider. How light it is. Brighter than moonlight, almost brighter than day. A great dome of light stands over the whole garden. Look, the elephants are dancing. How high they lift their feet. And they go round and round. Oh, look, how they lift their trunks and how ceremonial they are. It's like a minuet of giants. They are not like the other animals. They are sort of good demons. 
They are moving away, said Camilla. They will be as private as human lovers, said the director. They are not common beasts. I think, said McPhee, I'll away down to my office and cast some accounts. I'd feel easier in my mind if I were inside and the door locked before any crocodiles or kangaroos start courting in the middle of all my files. There'd be better, there'd better be one man about the place to keep his head this night for the rest of you are clean daft. Good night, ladies. Goodbye, McPhee, said Ransom. No, no, said McPhee, standing well back but extending his hand. You'll speak none of your blessings over me. If ever I take to religion, it won't be your kind. My uncle was moderator of the General Assembly. But there's my hand, what you and I have seen together, but no matter for that. And I'll say this, Dr. Ransom, that with all your faults, and there's no man alive knows them better than myself, you are the best man, taking you by and large, that I ever knew and heard or heard of. You are, you and I, but there are the ladies crying. I don't rightly know what I was going to say. I'm away this minute. Why would a man want to lengthen it? God bless you, Dr. Ransom. Ladies, I wish you a good night. Open all the windows, said Ransom. The vessel in which I must ride is now almost within the air of this world. It's growing brighter every minute, said Deniston. Can we be with you to, to the very end, said Jane? Child, said the director, you should not stay till then. Why, sir? You are waited for. <clears throat> Me, sir? Yes, your husband is waiting for you in the lodge. It was your own marriage chamber that you prepared. Should you not go to him? Must I go now? If you leave the decision with me, it is now that I would send you. Then I will go, sir. But but am I a bear or a hedgehog? More, but not less. Go in obedience, and you will find love. You will have no more dreams. Have children instead. Yerendi Maladil. Long before he reached St. Anne's, Mark had come to realize that either he himself or else the world about him was in a very strange condition. The journey took him longer than he expected, but that was perhaps fully accounted for by one or two mistakes that he made. Much harder to explain was the horror of light to the west over Edgestow and the throbbings and bouncings of the earth. Then came a sudden warmth and torrents of melted snow rolling down the hillside. Everything became a mist, and then, as the lights of the west vanished, this mist grew softly luminous in, diff in a different place, above him, as though the light rested on St. Anne's. And all the time he had a curious impression that things of very diverse shapes and sizes were slipping past him in the haze. Animals, he thought. Perhaps it was all a dream, or perhaps it was the end of the world, or perhaps he was dead. In spite of all the perplexities, he was conscious of extreme well-being. His mind was ill at ease, but as for his body, health and youth and pleasure and longing seemed to be blowing towards him from the cloudy light upon the hill. He never doubted that he must keep on. His mind was not at ease. He knew that he was going to meet Jane, and something was beginning to happen to him which ought to have happened to him far earlier. That same laboratory outlook upon love which had forestalled in Jane the humility of a wife had equally forestalled in him during what passed for courtship the humility of a lover. Or if there had ever arisen in him at some wiser moment the sense of, quote, beauty too rich for use, for earth too dear, unquote, he had put it away from him. False theories, at once prosaic and fanciful, had made it seem to him a mood frousty, unrealistic, and outmoded. Now, belated, after all favors had been conceded, the unexpected misgiving was coming over him. He tried to shake it off. They were married, weren't they? And they were sensible modern people. What could be more natural, more ordinary? But then, certain moments of unforgettable failure in their short married life rose in his imagination. He had thought often enough of what he called Jane's moods. This time, at last, he thought of his own clumsy importunity, and the thought would not go away. Inch by inch, all the lout and clown and clodhopper in him was revealed to his own reluctant inspection. The coarse male boar with horny hands and hobnailed shoes and beefsteak jaw, not rushing in, for that could be carried off, but blundering, sauntering, stumping in where great lovers, knights, and poets would have feared to tread. An image of Jane's skin, so smooth, so white, or so he now imagined it, that a child's kiss might make a mark on it, floated before him. How had he dared? <coughs> her driven snow, her music, her sac sacrosanctity, the very style of all of her movements, how had he dared? And dared, too, with no sense of daring, nonchalantly and careless stupidity. The very thoughts that crossed her face from moment to moment, <coughs> excuse me, all of them beyond his reach made, 
but he had but the wit to see it, a hedge about her which such as he should never have had the temerity to pass. Yes, yes, of course, it was she who had allowed him to pass it, perhaps in luckless misunderstanding pity, but he had taken blackguardy advantage of the noble error in her judgment, had behaved as if here native to that fence garden, or even its natural possessor. All this, which should have been un should have been uneasy joy, was torment to him, for it came too late. He was discovering the hedge after he had plucked the rose, and not only plucked it, but torn it all to pieces, and crumpled it with hot, thumb-like, greedy fingers. How had he dared? And who had understood? Who that understood could forgive him? He knew now what he must look like in the eyes of her friends and equals, seeing that picture he grew hot to the forehead, alone there in the mist. The word lady had made no part of his vocabulary save as a pure form or else a mockery. He had laughed too soon. Well, he would release her. She would be glad to be rid of him, rightly glad. It would now almost have shocked him to believe otherwise. Ladies in some noble and spacious room discoursing in cool ladyhood together, either with exquisite gravity or with silver laughter, how should they not be glad when the intruder had gone, the loud-voiced or tongue-tied creature, all boots and hands, whose true place was in the stable? What should he do in such a room, where his very admiration could only be insult, his best attempts to be either grave or gay, could only reveal unbridgeable misunderstanding? What had he called her coldness seemed now to be her patience, whereof the memory scalded, for he loved her now, but it was all spoiled, too late to mend matters. Suddenly the diffused light brightened and flushed. He looked up and perceived a great lady standing by a doorway in a wall. It was not Jane, not like Jane. It was larger, almost gigantic. It was not human, though it was like a woman, divinely tall, part naked, part wrapped in a flame-colored robe. Light came from it. The face was enigmatic, ruthless, he thought, inhumanly beautiful. It was opening the door for him. He did not dare disobey. Surely, he thought, I must have died. And he went in, found himself in some place of sweet smells and bright fires with food and wine and a rich bed. Section 8 And Jane went out of the big house with the director's kiss upon her lips and his words in her ears into the liquid light and supernatural warmth of the garden and across the wet lawn. Birds were everywhere. And past the seesaw and the greenhouse and the piggeries, going down all the time down to the lodge, descending the ladder of humility. First she thought of the director, then she thought of Maladil, then she thought of her obedience and the setting of each foot before the other became a kind of sacrificial ceremony. She thought of children and of pain and death. And now she was halfway to the lodge and thought of Mark and of all his sufferings. When she came to the lodge, she was surprised to see it all dark and the door shut. As she stood at the door with one hand on the latch, a new thought came to her. How if Mark did not want her? Not tonight, nor in that way nor any time, nor in any way. How if Mark were not there after all? A great gap of relief or of disappointment, no one could say, was made in her mind by this thought. Still, she did not move the latch. Then she noticed that the window, the bedroom window, was open. Clothes were piled on a chair inside the room so carelessly that they lay over the sill, the sleeve of a shirt, Mark's shirt, even hung over down the outside wall, and in all this damp too. How exactly like Mark. Obviously, it was high time she went in. The end. So, let me turn this off.